Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We are now in the Sinjin is an absolute monster chapters. Jane, now an heiress, moves back to Morehouse and gets the whole house ready with Hannah for Christmas. Diana and Mary come home, and the three women are so happy to be together and free from a life of teaching. Sinjin starts to ruin the fun immediately. He's disgruntled with Jane's interest in domestic work and says he'll give her a short while to live this way. Jane notices that Sinjin, quote, lived only to aspire after what was good and great, certainly, but still he would never rest nor approve of others resting around him. Eventually, Sinjin decides that Jane's time of happiness, her time of reading and studying with Mary and Diana is up. And he asks her to start studying Hindustani with him and put down the German she's been enjoying working on. He says that he needs someone to study with him so that he can practice Hindustani before he leaves on his mission to India in three months' time. But it turns out that Sinjin has another motivation behind this request. He wants Jane to come with him to serve as a missionary in India and wants her to come as his wife. Jane immediately hates the idea. Here is Professor Miriam Burstein. Well, part of the complication about Sinjin Rivers is that his basic goal in life to be a missionary is something that Charlotte Bronte wholeheartedly supports. All her correspondence is very pro-missionary work. But Sinjin Rivers himself, he's represented as problematic because in some ways he is like Brocklehurst and Rochester in the sense that he assumes that his will is of utmost importance when he proposes to Jane, his quite horrible proposal to Jane is very explicitly, it is not you, I, you know, it's the missionary that is getting married, not the man, right? And for Jane, this is just as appalling as Mr. Rochester's proposal that she go off to Europe with him and become his mistress. Uh, Because Jane talks about how realizing, well, Sinjin Rivers would go through all the forms of love with me, she says. And I sometimes tell my students that people say no one talks about sex in Victorian fiction. Hello, that is what Jane is talking about. That is what she is so horrified by, that he very clearly does not desire her. He will go through literally the forms of love, everything that marriage demands without the desire and without the passion, right? And that's as much an exploitation of Jane as Mr. Rochester trying to take her off to Europe and where they would live as husband and wife without really being married. Sinjin's power over Jane is so overwhelming that even though Jane recognizes it, she cannot entirely resist it. He overwhelms her. She wants to do as he says and to please him. Jane has no problem with the idea of Sinjin's mission and can even imagine herself going too, but she eventually gets up the strength to say that she cannot go as his wife. I am ready to go to India if I may go free, she says. Sinjin argues with her and argues with her. She stays firm. He says that he will give her more time to think about it and tells her, quote, do not forget that if you reject the marriage proposal, 
it is not me you deny, but God. And then I die from anger and frustration, and this podcast is over. I'm sorry, but bye forever. In chapter 35, Sinjin proposes again. And then he proposes again. Sinjin is trying his evangelism while he's still on English soil, trying to convert Jane into his wife and into a woman who will always do his bidding. In between proposals one and two, Sinjin is cruel to Jane. He behaves as if nothing is wrong, but is cold to her and gaslights her when she tries to address the tension. In between proposals two and three, Jane and Diana have a conversation. Diana tells Jane that the idea of Jane going with Sinjin is, quote, insupportable, unnatural, out of the question. Jane is worried that it would be a suicide mission, and Diana says that it will definitely, literally kill Jane. In the last proposal, Sinjin really goes for the throat. He is trying every pious angle to try to convince Jane that she absolutely has to marry him until he finally says, it is what I want. It is just what I want. Jane tells him that, quote, were I but convinced that it was God's will I should marry you, I could vow to marry you here and now, which Sinjin, bless his maniacal little heart, takes as a yes. But as he hugs her, celebrating, Jane hears something. The well-remembered voice of Fairfax Rochester screaming, Jane, Jane, Jane. Here is Katya Bowers, who we spoke to about the Gothic a few episodes ago on Jane's hearing Rochester's voice on the wind. What you'll notice is that these moments of the supernatural where the supernatural appears, including when Rochester's voice calls out to Jane later in the novel, they always happen around a moment of transition for Jane emotionally. So Jane will be acting out emotionally, and I say acting out because she's not behaving as you would expect, as society would expect a 19th century woman in her position to necessarily behave, right? But when she's acting out against the emotional constraints that her position has put her in. Um, so when she's feeling like kind of feeling for Rochester, when she has these feelings like of anger that she has in that red room scene, the supernatural manifests itself and it's explained, but it's explained by Jane. And you'll notice that she even tries to like, she has a, she, for her that supernatural moment when Rochester's voice appears, that is not supernatural for Jane. Jane tells us that her hearing Rochester's voice is not deception or witchcraft. It was a work of nature, and nature was roused and did no miracle but her best. So Jane answers to the voice on the wind, I am coming, wait for me, and goes to her room to pray. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, I don't know if you can tell, but Sinjin annoys me in these chapters. He's not your perfect man. (laughs) There were two moments in reading that I actually screamed. I was like, ah! Oh my God. Imagine saying that. I know. I know. Okay. But let's talk about like in terms of the what I think we should know part. Let's talk about one of the aspects that drives me craziest, not just about Sinjin, but about men who have a biblical notion of marriage that they attempt to enforce. I want to talk about the doctrine of wifely submission, which anyone who has known me for, I don't know, the past 25 years can tell you is a bit of an obsession of mine, one that I have written about a lot and interviewed about a lot. And so I'm going to try to be brief and let you know why I think that Bronte is railing against something that I, too, am railing against. Backing up. Sinjin says to Jane, come as my help meet, right? When he's saying, come as my bride. 
The word helpmeet comes from Genesis in which God says to Adam, it's not good that you're alone, dude. You need someone. And the thing I'm going to give you is this woman. And this woman is going to help you. And she's going to be suitable to you. She's going to meet your needs. And thus, God created woman in the form of the helpmeet. That notion then gets extended by Paul telling the Ephesians, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as you do the Lord. That husbands are the head of the family, have authority over their wives in the same way that Christ is the head of the church and has authority over Christians. And so I just I feel this submission doctrine so directly in what Sinjin is telling us and what he is expecting Jane to do. And we see Jane struggling with this concept so absolutely like this notion of if I knew that that was right, that's what I would do. Or this notion of I, that to me doesn't feel like freedom and I want to go and be free as myself and still do the work that you believe in. And I think that all of this material is part of what Bronte is railing against here and showing us, you know, Jane's resistance, even in this part of the book in which Jane is so broken down and attempting to submit so deeply. This is this is just the third rail for her. Yeah. And it's why Sinjin says you have to come as my wife. He can pretend any which way that it's not why he wants it. But he says, you can't come as my sister. And he can't articulate why. And it's because he would have no control over her as his sister. There's no reason that people in India would be able to find out that they are not actually brother and sister. They are cousins. This is something that you could easily, easily say. But he wants complete and utter control over her. And the only way for him to get that is through marriage. And the most telling part to me, and I, I know I mentioned this in my opening essay, but it just like lit up in neon on the page to me this time is when he says, but I want it, right? Like he keeps trying all of these different arguments of, I want you to come as my wife because that is the only way that we can truly serve God. It is your mission to serve God. I understand God's will. And let me tell you, this is what God wants for you. And Jane is just like, nope, nope, nope. And then finally, this I want it line, I think he is beating his head against the wall because he does not understand that this woman is just not giving him what he wants. And he thinks that they are essentially already married, that he essentially already has the power to tell her what to do and when. She is already in many ways behaving as his wife, following everything that he says that she should do. And at the end of the day, he's just like, I want it and I get everything I want. And therefore, he like literally mishears her. She says, if I thought that I, this is what I was supposed to do, I would do it. And he's like, great, you said yes. I will say, and this always surprises me when I get to the point in this chapter when Sinjin starts talking about hell and his concern for Jane's soul. But I do think that Sinjin is a true believer. It seems until that moment to me that he's just using the Bible as a source of power. But there does seem to be some pain that he feels around the idea of Jane going to hell. They have an evening reading before prayers. And what Sinjin chooses is in the most threatening way possible to read from Revelation, right? To read from the end of the world. This is not a subtle choice. And he, as Bronte writes, or as Jane tells us, slowly, distinctly read, the fearful, the unbelieving shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. And then Jane says, henceforward, I knew what fate St. John feared for me. I feel like that is the moment in which Jane is telling us he's trying to save me from hell, or at least that's what he thinks that he's doing. And yet, she says, a calm, subdued triumph, blent with a longing earnestness, marked his enunciation. I think that what she's trying to tell us, it, it is both this entitled power play, and he also, perhaps just through his own will, has come to believe it. It's hard to know what people will convince themselves of when so much glory 
is on the line, when so much ambition is on the line. We've certainly seen people spin narratives of convenience for far less. And perhaps it doesn't necessarily matter what the source of belief is for Sinjin at this point. He's clearly whipped him up into such a fervor that Jane must come with him, that it appears that he has convinced himself that he is her only salvation from hell, that this is her only salvation from hell, which, of course, is the most ego-driven thing I could possibly imagine. And this is part of the savior complex, right? This is the white savior complex. This is the male savior complex. This is inherent in missionary work, whether Bronte resists that or not. And it is the thing that I think Jane resists most about Sinjin. It is just interesting to me because we have to reckon with the fact that Charlotte Bronte was pro-missionary work, right? And the idea of missionary work, as we've talked about before, is the true belief that you are saving people's souls, that you are going and telling them the word of God, which will save them, right? And I mean, there's an idea of hell, right, that Dante talked about, that if you were just unlucky enough to be born before Christ, you were in hell, And so, of course, missionary work, the belief that this white English society has ownership on what it means to be good and civilized and saved and all of these things, right? This white supremacist notion of savages who we have to convert to our religion or they will suffer. I mean, it's just this this systemized form of oppression that went well past the time of slavery. And just like with slavery, we are still living in the repercussions of it in a very real way today. But what's so interesting to me is that Charlotte Bronte was pro that form of missionary work and was like, yes, we have to go. We have to go save the souls. People are going to suffer and go to hell. But on an interpersonal level, she hated it. She thought Sinjin should go and speak for God in India and go say to people in India, look, God wants you to take these vows and to be baptized. But she does not think that Sinjin has access to what God wants for her. And that is just such an interesting, you know, we talked about these these like political and social horizons that Charlotte Bronte could not see all the way to. And this is one, right? She intuitively understands on a personal level that one man does not actually know God's will. Sinjin cannot know God's will for Jane. And Charlotte Bronte understood that, but she somehow was unable to understand that that means that Sinjin cannot possibly know God's will when it comes to the people of India. Bronte holds different standards for what Jane should have to withstand and what people in India should have to withstand from Sinjin. Or or what Bertha should have to withstand from Rochester. I mean, right. she. you're right. You're absolutely right that, you know, our pale, smart English girl gets to be something that is so different than the other people who need to fall prey to these men. So Sinjin presses her to lay down her German and pick up Hindustani He obligates her to study as though, you know, she's like trying to get take the LSATs (laughs) or pass her orgo final. I mean, the intensity of this of this study. It's the bar exam. I know it's so high pressure. It's so intensive. And yet she just does it. And she says, as for me, I daily wished more to please him, but to do so, I felt daily more and more that I must disown half my nature, stifle half my faculties, wrest my tastes from their original bent, force myself to the adoption of pursuits for which I had no natural vocation. He wanted to train me to an elevation I could never reach. It racked me hourly to aspire to the standard he uplifted. She's just, she's completely sacrificing herself for this requirement of his, and it's breaking her down. And reading this just now, I was thinking about why it is that Sinjin chooses her as this prey to groom, as this figure that seems malleable. You know, we see so much of her stubbornness and her rapport with him in a way that I feel so charmed by. And yet at the same time, he sees her as this poor orphan. He sees her as someone with no identity, no safety beyond what she can muster for herself. And that feels like such a classic pattern, right? That that this controlling figure chooses someone who 
who can be controlled in so many ways because of trauma, because of poverty, because of lack of systemic structures to rely on. And it saddens me to watch her do it. And then, of course, we feel Jane's yearning for belonging. We feel Jane's yearning to please. We feel Jane's incredible isolation in these circumstances that she finds herself, that she's struggling with, that she's trying to make the best of. And this is what he offers her. This is the structure, the identity, the meaning, the purpose, and the ability to feel like she's the good girl. And I think that that desire to be the good girl, to to get the good grade, to be the chosen student, it's it's such a part of her that it feels like we can draw a line, I think, from the girl who left Gateshead to who we see in the parlor. And it scares me. And it's just incredible how cruel he is and how, again, like how gaslighty the cruelty is, right? Like John Reed, you could never say John Reed wasn't cruel. Like he would say she hit me first and lie and whatever. But objectively, he hits her. She bleeds. There isn't ambiguity. Whereas Sinjin kisses her goodnight and then stops kissing her goodnight and agrees to shake her hand, but then not in the way that, you know, they have been used to shaking hands. He is like managing her on such a micro level and has such an intuitive understanding, you know, in a really predatory way of what will make her feel vulnerable and is like, building her up and tearing her down and building her up and tearing her down. And, you know, on our other, on one of our other podcasts, I, we bless characters at the end of episodes. And I just like want to bless Diana for being like, yeah, Sinjin's a good guy, but like, get the fuck away from him. If you did what he said, you would die. And you seem miserable. You are not yourself. And I feel like that reaching out of friendship, it doesn't entirely buoy Jane. Jane responds like, yeah, well, I guess I should go talk to him. But I do think having one person from the outside who's like, this is not the you I know is so important. And especially that it's someone who isn't like Sinjin is a monster, right? But it's actually someone who loves Sinjin and sees his goodness. I feel like is Jane's only escape hatch. I think that he would have her entirely in his palm without Diana there. Bronte sets up all of these different things that Jane has to survive, right? She has to survive Gateshead and Mrs. Reed and John. She has to survive Lowood. She has to survive Bertha in some ways. And then what Rochester does. And then her life out on the moors and then in town and then, you know, all of these different things that feel so impossible for this orphan to survive without the strength of anything else around her. And it's so telling, I think, that it feels like the thing that she comes to the brink of losing herself in most fully is Sinjin's power over her. You know, what it means to not have that sisterhood until she gets it, that there's only so much that we can do on our own. There's only so much that we can fight on our own to fight for our own hearts, to fight for our own inner strength. Like, it's just too much. And, you know, especially when we are confronted by the power of people, especially, I think, men who suggest that they know us better, who suggest that they know what is good for us, what we really need, who we should really be, the power of what it means to be made to please them and have that validation and then have that validation pulled away, the power to warm someone to you and then have them ice you out and then bring them back to you again, like all of these sort of push pulls. It's such a it's such a psychological profile. And I think it's so telling that it is the thing that Bronte is telling us. Even Jane can't help but lose herself to this. And I agree, like the way the way out, the way to be reminded of one's own heart is is in the sort of sisterhood, is in the friendship of someone saying, yeah, this ain't you, girl. And the thing I want to say is how impressive I find Jane throughout all of this, right? He does. He picks her because she's isolated and she is, 
groomable in the way that, you know, we know that predators still pick kids whose parents are in the middle of a transition, who are working too hard, right? Who are vulnerable in any number of ways that has nothing to do with the strength of their character or who they are as people. And I love that we get this inside look as to what it is like to be someone in the middle of being groomed and the 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 force with which you still fight back. And and so, right, like there's this moment where Jane says to be forced to keep the fire of my nature continually low, to compel it to burn inwardly and never utter a cry, though the imprisoned flame consumed vital after vital, this would be unendurable, that being with Sinjin, right, would kill her. She would she would burn inwardly, right? She would burn from the inside out. And what I think is so amazing is you know, we have been led to believe that Jane is this like truly exceptional person. She has survived all of the things that you outlined. And yet even she almost falls prey to this. She happens to have Diana. And then she hears Rochester's voice, right? This supernatural thing plucks her from it. But I feel like this is Charlotte Bronte offering us a real moment of sisterhood of like Jane almost fell for this. Like, This is something that we can all fall for. We can all fall for a predator who's trying to manipulate us. And it it is supernatural works and sisterhood that keeps Jane from it. But that's it. It's just sheer luck. I also think that even beyond the specifics of grooming and predators, what you just read just made me feel so much like this is what we tell all girls to be. We tell all girls to keep their fire low. We tell all girls to be good and pipe down and please people. This is such a big part of social conditioning. And to have met Jane at that moment of her life in which she was resisting all the way, and then to see how we make a girl stop resisting. There's something about that that also feels like it's even bigger than the circumstances that Bronte is laying out for us here. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Lauren, we get to this moment right at the end of our chapter reading for today where Sinjin has decided that Jane has said yes to his proposal, even though she has objectively not said yes. She has used an if-then statement and the if the conditionality of her statement has not been met. And yet he is just like, "Ah, never mind that. You said yes to me. He grabs her. She's being held in his arms. And she hears the voice of Fairfax Rochester calling her name. And her response, right, is, oh, God, what is it? And she goes and starts talking to, like, the wind, right? I'm coming. Wait for me. Oh, I will come. Where are you? Where are you? And she listens and the wind sighs. And this is what she says, right? She says, I broke from Sinjin, who had followed me and would have detained me. It was my time to assume ascendancy, my powers and the my all the mys are in italics 
my powers were in play and in force. I told him to forbear question or remark. I desired him to leave me. I must and would be alone. And then the greatest line in the chapters, he obeyed at once. I was just like, yeah, go running. I love it. <laughs> and she says a line that I disagree with, but she says where there is energy to command well enough, obedience never fails. I do not find that to be true, but whatever. And then she locks herself in her room, falls onto her knees and prays. And even that, she says, in my own way, a different way of praying than Sinjin, but effective in its own fashion. And she gets near a mighty spirit, right? Like this prayer is transcendent. Her soul rushes out in gratitude at his feet. I rose and took resolve and lay down unscared, enlightened, but eager for daylight. So, you know, I feel like there's so many ways to read this of like, she's been put in this corner. And so she has almost like conjured this into being this reality of the voice. And we're going to find out more about the voice in the coming chapters. But there's something about her being trapped that something essential about her is finally like, absolutely no. And it is, it's like a superhero moment. It's like the spider bit her and the cape is on. And she is like, I can do anything now. And Sinjin's gone. Like we don't see him. Again. I mean, I love it. The, <laughs> the part that I love, I love so much. It is, you know, her Helen ready moment. I want to raise up my foam finger. There are fireworks. I am so all about it. And yet, and yet the notion that that there needs to be this sort of magical realism interruption of it, that it needs to be because she actually believes that she hears his voice, et cetera, like the power's all in Jane. I just want Jane to own the power herself. These magical incursions like this, to me, deflate some of the power and Yes, maybe we can imagine that she is manifesting that voice in her own mind, but I just want it to be her own ascendancy does not require Rochester's voice to bring her there. And so there's this element that just frustrates me and falls short at the moment that I, I am cheering for her the loudest. First of all, I, I'm very like moved by her, my time, my powers, right? The best. It's the best. But I... I just think that it's okay that we often get strength from one another. Like that is what I believe in. I believe that human connection, be it through books or through friendship, is what separates us from despair. And she is about to create a situation in which she is going to be engulfed in flames from the inside. So the fact that this man who loved her completely imperfectly and who she does not need, right? Like she doesn't need financially. She had the power to leave him. The fact that it is the idea that this man loves her that gives her that power. It's Diana who gives her the power earlier. It's Helen and Miss Temple who gives her that power earlier. And it's within her, right? We we see that she is capable, even when no one loves her at Gateshead, to just exist on her own steam. But I'm okay with the love. It's the magic realism that frustrates me. It's the actual voice on the wind. The idea that she is willing to courageously resist a loveless marriage and instead decide that her prayer, her meaning is for love, is for connection. That I think is extraordinary. I just, I want it to not have to be so mystical, but that is where I tend to resist the Gothic and resist supernatural romance. I want realism in my romance. And I think that that might just be a matter of taste, but I, I want her to feel his voice without the supernatural incursion. I want her to feel the power of love without it having to be something outside of herself that reminds her. Yeah. And I, you took the words out of my mouth with I think it's taste because I think earlier in my life, I felt the same way. And now I'm like, these are the feelings that I have, right? I have such intense feelings. I've talked about this before, but I really remember that feeling so strongly in middle school. I did not have a lot of friends in middle school, but I watched a lot of other people around me 
make really big compromises and give in to peer pressure in dangerous ways in a way that I did not feel like I had to. And the reason for that is that I had a best friend since I was five years old, Kim, and we did not go to the same school. But I knew that when I got home, there was someone who was going to ask me about my day and care and that Kim would listen to every bad thing that happened to me and validate me, right? And she and I had moments that felt like magical realism. Kim never missed a day of school, not ever. She had a perfect attendance record. And there was one day that I was walking by a payphone in the eighth grade. And I don't know why, but I was like, I'm going to call Kim and leave her an answering machine message. I'm like, what did we call them? Voice message? Just messages. And she picked up the phone and she was just too depressed to go to school that day. And for the first time since the first grade, her mom let her stay home. And that did, it felt supernatural to me, right? Like, and it was just a coincidence, but this is what it has felt like to me to experience those moments. And so I, I don't mind the hyperbole in literature. This like, it felt like it was on the wind. It felt like nature came to take care of me. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just trying to defend my taste, my poor taste in the Gothic and the supernatural. But I mean, it's also funny how how we consider it to be poor taste. Like, I don't think that there's anything superior about resisting it. If anything, I feel like what is wrong with my like Sinjin cold heart? Because <laughs> then I hear you say that and I think like, right, that's really beautiful. But no. But no. But no, I'm just a crotchety old person. What can I tell you? Yeah, no, it's fine. Is it okay if I don't marry you and become a missionary with you? I know, but India would be so much fun together. (laughs) I want it. (laughs) (laughs) There is one last moment that I just feel like we have to give like a little shout out to, which is this, this line that often gets quoted from Jane Eyre, which is, I'd rather be happy than dignified. And it's one of the like, Etsy art t-shirt lines that gets pulled from the novel. And it's a really beautiful sentiment that I love that Jane says it in the novel. And it always just surprises me, not because people love it. Of course, you know, tattoo it, wear it on a t-shirt. It's a great idea. It just is so the antithesis of how Jane lives through most of the book. She, throughout the book again and again, chooses dignity over happiness, dignity in like a performative exterior way. And I think that she says this about Sinjin, you know, Sinjin sort of pulls away from her and Diana says, go after him and, you know, make amends. And Jane does. And she says, I would always rather be happy than dignified in situations like this. And I think that Jane says this now after she has starved for three days and almost died and has been totally alone and has found a family and has money. So... I think that it's a beautiful idea, and I just feel like it's important to remind ourselves how hard one of an idea it is for Jane. It is not the Jane of Thornfield who says, I would rather be happy than dignified. It is the Jane of Morehouse. And I like that, right, like Jane changes and has moods and has specifics, and it is a tattooable line and yet not a line that I think is emblematic of Jane throughout the book. Right. And it's a process to get her there, right? Like it's every possible attempt to choose to be dignified instead of happy over and over and over. And it is interesting that that it is this episode with Sinjin, which is the only time that she loses herself so much that the possibility of that dignity is a bridge too far. You know, she's still fighting for dignity when she's starving. She's still fighting for dignity when she leaves her love. But it is this, this sort of sacrifice of herself, which is too much dignity to be worth it. Well, Lauren, we are like circling the wagons on the end here. What are you looking forward to? We're doing chapters 36 and 37. I mean, this is the big stuff, right? This is the big crescendo. This is our grand finale here. It is not insignificant what will happen in the coming chapters. And I have all kinds of different feelings about it. So I can't wait to dig in with you. What are you looking forward to? I mean, this is right. Like the great Rochester and Jane reunion, she tells us at the end of the chapter, right? Like, I will go find you. It's not a spoiler to say that she goes and finds him. But we also find out what happened to Bertha in a way that is heartbreaking, but truly illuminating. And so I'm I'm excited to have that conversation with you about how we feel about how the book wraps up our 
conversation about Bertha. I intend to discuss it both in happiness and in dignity, Vanessa. <laughs> it is our time. It is our time. It is our time. <laughs> it is our ascendancy. So we haven't really gotten into the role of missionary work in the expansion of empire. And of course, that is such a big part of these chapters and what Sinjin is up to here. So we thought that it would be a good idea to call someone who could tell us a thing or two. Ideally, someone who would have written a book, say, called The Empire of Apostles, who's a history professor at Georgetown, Ananya Chakravarti. So let's get her on the phone. Hi, Lauren. Hi, thank you for joining us. It's lovely to be here with you. So, I mean, Bronte just seems like such a defender of missionary work. And I was just hoping that you could give us a little context for that. And I know that you're a lover of this book, but do these chapters just make you feel all kind of something? (laughs) Well, it's funny that you say that because I I read this first as a teenager in Calcutta, in my hometown. And of course, growing up in Calcutta, sort of reading these Victorian novels was very much part of my upbringing. So there's the colonial hangover for you right there. And especially when I read it in that context, I don't think I was really thinking about it in terms of that imperial relationship. But now what's sort of the hindsight of, you know, I'm, I'm now a historian and I specifically look at religion and empire. I just see so much more in the novel in terms of the richness of that. Do you think that Sinjin's zeal and his passion to spread Christianity feels like a form of ideological imperialism and one that Bronte supported one that maybe we should be thinking critically about as we read this text? I mean, anytime you're thinking about missionaries and empire, you have to kind of think critically. I love the way that the whole novel actually has all the different kind of tendrils of the British Empire at this time. In fact, the figure of Sinjin is probably based on the the real-life missionary Henry Martin, who Bronte actually talks about. And in his memoir or his journals, when he reaches Funchal in Madeira on his journey to India, he talks about it as being this totally foreign place. And he's like, I've, you know, I feel so alienated and I'm seeing all these people in black robes. He's describing Catholic priests and nuns. And for him, it's just as alien. And in fact, the only moment that he feels familiarity in Madeira is where he sees this really devout African woman who's, you know, sort of praying and... Uh, tells himself, maybe I'll see her in heaven. And so it's this very interesting kind of moment where, you know, what is inside and what is outside for a missionary doesn't map onto necessarily our ideas of Europe versus the West in such clean ways, right? These are all places that, you know, that they have very kind of very complex relationships with. But in terms of India itself, I mean, of course, I mean, When he gets to Henry Martin, the same figure, when he gets to Madras finally, and he sees this whole sea of, as he calls, black people, and he's he's impressed with how elegant they are, but he sees them as essentially servile. He says basically, oh, these are all servants ready to serve us, you know? And he's, he's really offended when he's going up the coast from Madras. He's making his way to Calcutta. And along the coast, he sees the Jagannath Temple in Puri, which is a, you know, huge temple there. And he sees it as almost an affront that how, how dare this heathen religion have this big monument that can be seen by foreigners on the sea. And so there is absolutely this, this supremacist thing, but that is almost not that surprising if you're, if you're a scholar of that period or you look at religion and empire. With religious biographies, there's almost a kind of typology built in. And now when I read Jane Eyre, I can almost see some of that you know, she's, she's so steeped in religion that in writing Jane Eyre's biography, I mean, in some ways she's drawing on this long Christian tradition of writing religious biography of the creation of the Christian subject, of the process of conversion. And you see it in the way that she, you know, she deals with it. But what's really interesting is that for her, 
the interesting figure is not Sinjin, it's Jane. I think for someone like Bronte, you don't need to go abroad to be an evangelical, and you certainly don't need to go abroad for the process of conversion. Because the process of conversion is as much a self-centered process as it is converting others. Ananya, I'm very curious, far beyond the scope of the novel and perhaps what Bronte could have even imagined herself, if you can give us just sort of a basic primer on the cultural impact of missionary work in India. Well, I mean, there's a larger question of like, you know, Christianity in India. Christianity in India is really old, you know, so we have Persian crosses along the, the coast of India from the 6th to the 9th century onwards. We have every denomination you can imagine and waves of it, right? So, I mean, from the 16th century onwards, we have a Latin Catholic community that begins through Portuguese and Catholic missionaries. And then over time, obviously, with not just the English, but really before them, even the Dutch and even the Danish, right? There, There were really important Protestant missionary works. And so throughout the 19th century, especially, like evangelical missionary work has become really important. And again, it's complicated, right? So on the one hand, there was undoubtedly sort of legal and political pressure to convert that was exerted by various European regimes. So in Goa, for example, where I study, you know, there were there were laws passed that, you know, if you didn't convert, it would be hard to kind of hold on to your property or, you know, over time sort of land rent, you couldn't collect it if you hadn't converted. So there were there were different kinds of imperial pressures to convert. But it's also really hard not to see that, you know, within a couple of generations, you had genuinely devout Indian Christian communities. So there's there's that dynamic. And then again, also, the fact is that missionaries, especially in the 19th century, missionary education especially was an important venue for the creation of Dalit education in India in the 19th century. So education particularly was always a very missionary-heavy enterprise. I mean, the best colleges come from, whether it's Jesuit colleges in India or, you know, later on other schools, they all have religious backgrounds. But again, really, really different. So in terms of the, the kind of social impact. So you could argue that someone like me reading Jane Eyre, reading myself out of Jane Eyre, sitting in Calcutta is, you know, one of these kind of forms of imperial violence that actually missionary education over time has kind of created. But on the other hand, like the thing that I think about is that without missionary schools, pervasive sort of caste norms around access to education might have taken a lot longer to break down. And in fact, you know, the sort of enormously important uh, 19th century educational initiatives of Dalits all, if you could trace it back to actually, at some point, they they went through missionary educational schools because they didn't have the kind of caste prejudice that traditional schools had about educating lower caste people. The way that I teach my students is that, like everything else, imperialism is a classed process. Not everybody experiences it the same. So for indigenous elites, it, it, it affected, imperialism affected that community of which I am a descendant in a very different way than it affected, say, caste oppressed or other marginalized communities. And you have to be sensitive to those differences. And particularly when you're dealing with missionaries who really have a much more complex relationship to empire, because their goal ultimately is not about temporal dominion, right? It's about spiritual dominion, if anything. And and that's really where you can see, you know, they'll, they'll work together at times, but there are clearly moments where missionaries, you know, completely reject the kind of imperial imperatives that are coming from the metropole. When you were a teenager reading this book in Calcutta and you were reading these specific chapters and reading the descriptions of how Sinjin was imagining India, how Jane was imagining India, did you feel unseen? You know what's really funny is because I think people really underestimate how colonial our continuing education in India is. I, I'm so I was so used to reading English people's views of India that you just kind of you kind of skip through it. You know, I'm I I have an absolute obsession with Agatha Christie, for example. Love her. It's still my favorite way to relax you know, is to just curl up with uh, Hercule Poirot. 
her books are full of just the most offensive <laughs> colonial stereotypes and just really but you just have a way when you're when you're reading in English and and, and you're growing up in a post-colonial place like India of putting yourself outside of that to be able to read and you know it's it's a really it's it's a way in which for example you know what I teach a class on women and film and I and I teach my students about the male gaze and and of the camera and that doesn't mean that women don't enjoy films right we just we've we've almost sort of become trained to look as if we were men and so in the same way when you're a teenage girl in Calcutta you're reading as if you were English because that is how you were initially taught to read. And I think actually what really resonated for me was like the feminism of Jane Eyre, like the, 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 the insistence on equality. And so, so it's interesting on the one hand, obviously there was no way I could make room for myself if I was reading in that way as an Indian, but as a woman, there was so much in that novel that, that, really, really resonated and, and felt powerful and potentially liberatory, which is, I think, exactly where Bronte's religious life was coming. I, I think sometimes we have a way of sort of looking at, you know, progressive, if you will, and to use an, an, an anachronistic term, impulses as coming from secular sources. But especially for the periods that I look at, it's it's often actually religious life that leads to real conditions for for radical reimaginings of, of society, including what it would mean to be a woman. I really appreciate that. It's especially helpful for me to hear as someone who gets cranky about religious life in general. And so being reminded that these things can't be pulled apart as neatly maybe as I would like them to is really helpful. I so appreciate that you took our call, Ananya, and I really have been fascinated by the nuance um, that you brought into this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to On Air. We're a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. We are a Not Sorry production, a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariane Nettleman, and our associate producer is Molly Baxter, and we are distributed by ACAST. We'd like to thank Miriam Burstein, Katya Bowers, and Ananya Chakravarti for talking to us, Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.